Hello, and welcome to the Christ Table Podcast, a Bible study for those who struggle with digging into the Bible, but who want to develop a richer faith, one with some meat on its bones. I'm Kevin Young, a media guy turned minister who's passionate about helping others thrive, especially spiritually. If you're unaware, Christ Table is a movement of people returning the church to her roots, in homes, around tables, over food with old friends and fresh conversations. Check us out over at www.christtable.today. In the meantime, our study continues on the topic of brave conversations. We'll be focusing on domestic violence today as we look deeper into 1 Kings chapter 14. Let's dig in. One of the things that is important for us to remember when it comes to domestic violence is that oftentimes it is a situation that we are unable to initially see. Sometimes even if we're the one who is being the abuser or if we're being even the abused, sometimes it is not always apparent to either one of those people what what's truly going on, that there's a domestic violence or an abuse situation. If it's not always immediately apparent to them, certainly from the outside, is not always immediately apparent either. And so when we come to today's text, we actually see this happening in this text where the abuse, the domestic violence is not immediately apparent, but it's there. And so maybe it's important for us this week to start with a place of discovery where we perhaps begin by opening our eyes to this idea of domestic violence and perhaps becoming more sensitive to the hints and the indications that it's present. So when we jump into the story, we jump into the story of the first king of a divided nation of Israelites. And so the first king in this divided nation of Israelites is Jeroboam. And one of the things that we see throughout the entire story of Jeroboam, and you can read around not just 1 Kings 14, our text for today, but you can start earlier in 1 Kings 13 and and 1 Kings chapter 12. And what you'll see is actually that there is a trajectory of change in this king's life where he doesn't start out being a potential abuser but what he starts out being is actually a, as the Bible calls it, a substantial hero, a Gabor Hayil. And so he begins in First Kings chapter 11 by being a real hero. But over the trajectory of his 22-year reign, things change. And he actually does a 180-degree turn and becomes a person who is described by the time we get to First Kings chapter 14 as being a person who is more evil than all who lived before. People change. Unfortunately, people change. I know that the old idiom is, or the old adage is that people people never change. And obviously there is something to that idea that, that you know, we are the people in some ways whom we will ever be. But the people who you thought we were in one moment may not be the people who we end up being. The person whom you married, the person whom you got into that exciting dating relationship with, the person whom you moved in with, seemed on the surface to be one person. And the more you got to know them, the more they were a different person. Maybe that's the situation here with Jeroboam, but the text actually seems to imply that he actually changes. That happens as well. People allow influences, 
into their lives that they shouldn't allow into their lives. They begin pursuing or chasing things that they perhaps didn't originally pursue or change. And over the course of a length or a period of time, they become a different person. This is what happens to Jeroboam. And so when we jump into the story in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 1, Jeroboam has become this person who did more evil than all of the people who lived before. And it's a tragic story because this was not always who he was. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Jeroboam's son, Abijah, became very sick. So Jeroboam told his wife, whom also is presumably Abijah's mother, disguise yourself so that no one will recognize you as my wife. Then go to the prophet Ahijah at Shiloh, the man who told me I would become king. Take him a gift of 10 loaves of bread, some cakes, a jar of honey, and ask him what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife went to Ahijah's house at Shiloh. Shiloh is the central place of worship. During those times, it would be where the priests were located. And it also is here where the story is going to kind of unfold. Already at this point, we have some big question marks in our mind. Why is Jeroboam not going himself to this place? Well, it may well be because he doesn't want to face God's person. It also is because he has already been condemned, uh, in a sense, spiritually uh, and practically by this Ahijah. Also, uh, he may well have thought that he would not receive the answer that he wanted if he goes and even encourages his wife to go so that no one will recognize you, encourages her to go incognito. And so there are a tremendous number of red flags already as a part of this passage in the way that this man is acting. So she goes. Now, he was an old man now and could no longer see. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife will come here pretending to be someone else. So, so the gig is up before she even arrives. She will ask you about her son, for he is very sick, and give her the answer that I give to you. So when he hears footsteps at the door, he calls out, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why are you pretending to be someone else? So he doesn't even give her uh, the opportunity to enter in under this false pretense and this false story. And then he tells her, I have bad news for you. So he just immediately outs with the news. Give your husband, Jeroboam, this message from the Lord, the God of Israel. And the message is one that essentially the son will die from complications of whatever illness he was facing. But not only was the son going to die, but Jeroboam was essentially going to lose his kingdom. There would be no heirs of his that would ultimately take the throne or survive. And all of this is kind of wrapped up in the idea of what we said in the beginning, that he had moved from being a substantial hero to being a person whom was the most evil person whom had ever lived uh, is kind of the way that it was described there. And so because of that, what happens is, is it sets in motion this chain of events that affects the son whom he loves, affects the rest of his family, affects his kingdom, affects his profession, affects the nation in which he's in charge of. And so we see this like 
concentric circle of rings that spreads out and ultimately affects not just him because of his sin and because of his evil, but affects all of those around him. So after giving this prophecy to the wife, then Ahijah says to Jeroboam's wife, go home. And when you enter the city, I hate to tell you, but the son, the son's going to die when you get there. Uh, and all of Israel will mourn for him and will bury him. He is the only member of your family who will have a proper burial for this child is the only good thing that the Lord God of Israel sees in the entire family of Jeroboam. And this is a heartbreaking statement. We all want our children to be good, to be better than us. We all want our children uh, to have positive outcomes. And who wouldn't want it to be said of them that, that it is uh, a good thing uh, that the Lord sees in them? But the only good thing to see in the entire family of Jeroboam um, is, a, is a statement about the entire family and really is a statement about the leadership of Jeroboam. And so what we're doing here now is we are, we're kind of reading between the lines as to what's going on in this story. And what's going on in this story underneath the surface isn't pointing uh, to just there being evil, but is pointing to very specific kinds of evil. So Ahisha talks a little bit more about this prophecy and about Israel and about the outcomes and then at the close of the passage, we see that Jeroboam's wife returns to Tirzah and the child died just as she walked through the door of her home. And so uh, it came true. He was right. The child was about to die and, and that it would happen upon her return home. And all of Israel buried and mourned him as the Lord had, prophet, as the Lord had promised through the prophet. What we see here, though, is not just a story of the unfortunate passing of a child uh, who was well-loved and who was clearly an incredible, incredible individual, uh, probably not unlike how, how his father had begun as a substantial hero, as 1 Kings chapter 11 has said. But what we see here between the lines is a very odd and concerning relationship between Jeroboam and between his wife. Now, the fact that we don't have the wife's name is, uh, it's not necessarily unusual in a patriarchal society and situation that, we'll, that we wouldn't have the wife's name, but it is unusual that we would not be given the wife's name in a story where she plays such a critical and key role. And so what we see here as we kind of do a, um, a reading of this passage is that the wife tends to be um, unnamed. Uh, she never even speaks that we're told. She is only spoken to, uh, which if you read back through this, it's fascinating that she she doesn't have a voice in any of the situations that she's in. Uh, and she is this mysterious character who seems to be colorless, who seems to be uh, lifeless, who seems to be the central character in this whole chapter, but is two-dimensional, is almost a ghost or a shell of an individual. Why is that? Well, I think we can say that she's that way in this passage and written that way because that was 
that was how she was in life. We should see that in the way Jeroboam treats her. And the way Jeroboam treats and interacts with his wife is concerning and actually may well be part of the reason or a primary part of the reason why it said that he was a person who did evil and more evil than anyone who had ever lived before him. I want you to I want you to see this. I want you to see hints of abuse that we see in this passage of her. First of all, we see her isolation. There is um, a incredible amount, if you look closely, of isolation between she and the other characters in the story, especially, especially her husband, Jeroboam. We also see passivity in her. No pushback. She does immediately what she's told, how she's told it, how she's told to do it in a very um, unusual situation uh, that she is being asked to do here. Uh, but yet she still seems to have no no autonomy or no authority in the situation. She instantly obeys. The fact that she goes back uh, also to this situation with the message to me is uh, a fascinating part that hints at abuse that she actually returns to the situation where she has no voice, no power seemingly, uh, and her lack of response to Jeroboam and to um, the prophet, the priest, Ahijah, is all data points that add up to me to say that there is likely a situation here of abuse. Now, obviously, this week we're talking about domestic violence, and we don't have on record and, and probably should not assume violence here either. But I think that what we do have is abuse. Uh, and we can say that in a sense, abuse, even if it is not necessarily physical, is still violence of a different sort. Now, I want to look at this now from the opposite perspective. And I want to look at him for a moment and say, is he really an abuser with what he's doing here? Well, Let's just kind of look at some of the data points that we have. His command mode manner whenever he's addressing his wife, he literally just commands her or tells her what to do, something that is wrong, really, to, to pretend to dress up, to try to deceive. Uh, the fact that he just commands her to do that is, is abuse. His lack of compassion toward her over the illness of their son uh, sending her in order to do this when clearly she's probably concerned, when she's grieving, there seems to be no compassion towards her at all. Uh, why would he not go on his own you know, to do this? Why does he send her? That is a severe lack of compassion for her feelings and for what she's going through. His control over her comings and goings. I'm going to tell you to go here. I'm going to tell you to do this. There seems to be an insecurity, obviously, about seeking out the religious prophet himself, Ahijah. So the man, Jeroboam, here is clearly on some level, I would say, a coward. And he chooses evil, uh, both in this situation and clearly in life, he chooses evil. And 
and seems to be emotionally controlling his wife. All of these minor, perhaps, data points or bordering on major data points, but all of them add up to creating this scenario where it seems as though there is abuse going on in the relationship in between Jeroboam and his wife, whatever her name may be. So oftentimes, these data points are present in other people, and yet we look past them. And there is a propensity, a potential for us to look past these data points here and say, no, that's not really what's going on here. Let's explain these away in different ways. Why would we want to explain these away in different ways? I understand that it's a little bit uncomfortable, but whenever we do that, we allow abuse of individuals to continue. There is clearly some level of abuse here that's going on for essentially making her go and do this on his behalf. That is abuse. How far this goes into domestic violence and other forms of abuse, we don't know. But what we do know is, is that this is a concerning gateway drug into other potential forms of abuse. And if we ignore even these lowest level ones, then we are certain to ignore the deeper ones as well, which is why so many people end up remaining in abuse. So um, what are some of the traits of abuse? Well, the first thing I want to say is, um, though these are perhaps written a little bit from the vantage point of it being a male who's doing the abuser, we know from the data that abuse can go either way in a relationship. It's not always the man who is the abuser. It's not always the, the woman who is abused in a relationship. Uh, men can be abusive. Women can be abusive. Men can be the target of domestic violence and abuse. Women can be the target of domestic violence and abuse. So what are some of the traits? Well, whether it's male or female, some of the traits are a low self-esteem. Uh, oftentimes is a primary data point for somebody who will end up being an abuser in a relationship. For men, belief in male superiority, belief that the man is uh, in a male-female relationship, superior, is in control, is supreme, uh, that there is supposed to be uh, subservience, submission, uh, those things tend to lead to oftentimes a data point that can mean an abusive situation. The tendency to blame others, oftentimes a trait of an abuser. Pathological jealousy, if they're always jealous of the other person. Possessive of, partner's time, of a partner's time. A dual personality. They act one way when they're in public. They act another way in private towards the other person. Severe stress reactions, whenever someone reacts severely in stressful situations, can be a trait of an abuser. Someone who frequently uses sex as an aggressive act or as a controlling act of another individual. And a refusal to believe that actions may have negative consequences. We see several of these in place in Jeroboam and his relationship with his wife. And if you will roll back through instances either in your life or in your relationships or 
in relationships of other people that you have seen that have been abusive relationships, you will recognize that these things are present there as well. So what do we what do we do with all of this? Well, I want to go back to where we began. That oftentimes what happens is there is a trajectory in life where people move from being substantial heroes to being more evil than all who lived before. Uh, just because somebody who you know or who you knew was a wonderful person when you were interacting with them in the past does not necessarily mean that that person is today who they were then. I think that we have to, in the church and just as human beings, take responsibility in order to be aware, to help identify abuse in relationships and in situations. Our radar must always be up. Uh, if perhaps somebody had paid attention and been aware of what Jeroboam's wife was going through and had stood up and had said something, we don't know if the outcome of the story would have changed, but we know that her outcomes would have changed. And I think that that is the real important point that as the church, it is our responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to help people when they are unable or maybe even sometimes unwilling to help themselves. In domestic violence situations and abuse situations, oftentimes it's not that they are unwilling. It is simply that they are unable. It's why Jeroboam's wife returns back home because there is a fear from all of the emotional abuse that has happened of what happens if they don't return back home. And so she isn't thinking in a right mind or a logical mind, but is thinking out of an abused mind. In those situations, whenever we see those things, we've got to step in. We've got to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We can't look the other way. We've got to help. Lest we allow Jeroboam's to continue to perpetuate themselves. This Bible study on Brave Conversations is brought to you by Christ Table. If you'd like to join us in the study, there's an easy-to-follow guide in the show notes. We'd love to have you join us. You know, 65 million adults in the United States have dropped out of church, and that number will grow by 2.7 million before the end of this year. We here at Christ Table are committed to doing something about that. We're committed to creating a world where the table is once again the center of the home, the center of family life, and especially the center of faith formation again. Our mission, that's simple, to help people eat freely and drink deeply of life and of faith. Find out more about us by going to www.christtable.today. And when you get over to christtable.today, be sure to sign up for our email list there. And for those who choose to donate, we've got a resource box that we'll send you in the mail as our thanks. And trust me, you're going to like it. By the way, this podcast is available because of the generous donations of our listeners and the incredible community of people who call Christ Table their spiritual home. Join us on our next episode as we continue our conversation on domestic violence. And if you'd like to watch these Bible studies live, well, there's more information on our website about that as well. www.christtable.today. Thanks so much for listening. We wouldn't be here without you. Until next time, I'm Pastor Kevin Young, and this is the Christ Table Podcast.